Hello, and welcome to this week's View from the Byline podcast. My name is Alex Brinton, and as usual, I'm joined by Peach Finovich and Matt Lee. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, good. Just the same as usual in this situation, just ticking along slowly. Uh, it's nice to have first year of university done and wrapped up. What are you, Pete? How are you finding things? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks, Matt. It's uh, nice to have this sort of weekly catch-up, over, even if it is over Zoom. But uh, yeah, the sun is shining. Look very nicely outside and I wish I'd probably be able to sit outside a bit more than been able to doing some uni work recently but plenty of time for that now yeah exactly nice to, nice that it's all done um it's been very strange first year experiences but you know we move on yeah it's uh it's one that will live in the memory so yeah definitely uh, not many people not many people will have a first year of university that's actually only what five months six months yeah, something like that, unfortunately. This week, we're joined by Manveen Rana. She's the host of the new Stories of Our Times podcast that's on Times Radio. Before then, she worked on a multi-award winning podcast series where she travelled with the family of Syrian refugees from Jordan to Europe. What did you find most interesting, Pete? Well, I found all of it really interesting, to be fair, but what I found most interesting would have to be the moral dilemmas she had to decide upon. Often when she realised that at the end of it, she was able to go home to her nice way of life, whereas these people were, you know, this was their life. So it was really quite interesting to think about. What about you then, Matt? What did you find most interesting from this uh, episode? I think just listening to her experiences as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East, I'd say that public, whilst we see a lot of these reports from over in those war-torn countries and the experience of refugees, you never really get that first-hand experience of the journey across the countries um, and I'd say that the pub they probably admit that possibly they're quite naive about the experiences that people go through over in those countries so to hear a first-hand um, account of what had happened um, was really quite interesting and insightful. Yeah I couldn't agree with that more really it was um, the way she talked us through the her journey was quite incredible really. Before we get into the interview with Manveen, we as a podcast would like to offer our support for the Black Lives Matter campaign. We have been saddened by the footage that has come out of the United States over the past week. We do acknowledge that as three white lads, we will never truly understand what it's like to be a black person in society. We just hope that the death of George Floyd is not in vain and this really is a turning point. I know I've been stunned by the powers of social media again, especially in the, in the Blackout Tuesday campaign. Have you boys got anything else to add? Yeah, I'd say it's just, it shows the power of social media to try and press, spread positivity. I think it's really trying to do some good. And hopefully, like you say, there will be a, some lasting change from all of this. Yeah, as you've already spoken on, I think it is an important issue that, that needs change. And hopefully this will be the turn point and the catalyst for change to see what will happen. And hopefully there'll be greater freedoms and yeah, just that something good will come out of it. Yeah, I think we all hope that. Now that we've addressed that important issue, let's get into the pod. It's so easy when you're a journalist to sort of just be obsessed with the things you're looking at and the story around you and sort of forget yourself in the middle. It wasn't always easy getting through the, the borders even with your passport because people don't trust you and they think you've stolen it. <laughs> and I just got there and I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, there was just, there were Syrian refugees everywhere. They were asleep on the streets. They were crowding around the stations. They're all looking for smugglers. And if anyone has to come and save you, then you're probably dead already. And they kept sending me all these sort of legal letters. And I found out in the end that they'd spent about, about £100,000 on lawyers and reputation management people to stop the reporting. And this is charity money. And then we got to Serbia and there was this moment where we'd had to walk across this sort of big dusty plain. I mean, it looked almost biblical. Hi, Manveen. How are you? Fine, thank you. How well, are you all? Yeah, we're all good, I think. Yeah, just about getting yeah. through. <laughs> yeah, just ticking along as usual. The news is keeping us very entertained, that's for sure. Yeah, it's getting us all through lockdown at the moment. Definitely. Never a dull moment. <laughs> as always, we always start with these um, three quick-fire questions. So I'll, I'll give you the first one. When did you first realise you wanted to be a journalist? Oh, good question. Um... It's weird, actually. There was probably exactly, I can pinpoint a moment. Um, 
I didn't think I was going to be a journalist. I didn't sort of grow up thinking I was going to be a journalist. I always thought I'd be really rubbish at it because uh, I'm, I'm not great with deadlines, or I wasn't as a kid anyway. Um, uh, and I, I sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd started doing work experience at the Telegraph when I was just finishing school and all the way through university too. And I had just finished university and graduated and it was the first summer and I was trying to work out whether I was going to go and work for a bank or if I was going to do a postgrad. Mm. And I, I, was, I thought I was just filling in in between at, back at the Telegraph again. And then um, September the 11th happened. And okay. we, were, we were based in Canary Wharf at the time. And you probably don't remember this, but they, they evacuated Canary Wharf because they thought oh. it was a target. You know, it was quite close to London Airport. And mm. when they saw the, the Twin Towers going down, they thought Canary Wharf was, was on the list. And so there was only about sort of, about 30 to 40 people left in, in the building to put the paper to bed and I just remember it being extraordinary and sort of quite hard to walk away from from feeling like you were right in the middle of it all uh, and yeah. getting like this front seat on something extraordinary. So you talk about one very big major event to happen but if you could cover one historical event over the history of time what would it might that be? Oh god um Oh God, so much choice. Um, you know, the weird thing is, uh, it's, it's not a bad time to be a journalist now. Mm. You know, um, I, th I think given the way that we operate for a start, it's sort of so much easier to get around and, and be able to sort of access places in a way that we never used to be able to before and to be able to broadcast from everywhere where you never used to be able to before. But also, you know, I look back at the last few years and, you know, with a combination of, Brexit, a global pandemic. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. It, it's, it's just, it's never been such an extraordinary time for, for the news. I remember there was a moment around sort of like the Arab Spring when we all sort of thought the world's gone mad. The news is insane. It's like you're constantly on, you know, you just never get a moment off. And we kept yeah. thinking it'll be like this for a year. Next year, things will calm down again. We'll have a silly season. And I can't remember the last time we did. I can't remember the last time we had a silly season. I was I thinking that after Brexit, to be honest, but <laughs> not the case. It is a really intense time to be a journalist. So mm. in some ways, I guess, I guess we're quite lucky. Yeah, it's certainly something that one of our former guests, Jim Waters of The Guardian, has said, he said that if you're a journalist and not getting a kick out of what's going on right now in terms of how busy it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds awful to say getting a kick out of it, but... It, you know, as a journalist, just in, in news, in pure news terms, mm. it's a remarkable moment. Mm. So in terms of looking back on your career, what piece of advice would you give to a younger self coming into the industry to start with? Oh, God. Um, try everything. Pitch everything and keep pitching. Um, and don't let sort of, don't, don't be put off and don't sort of, um, don't be disheartened either. Just keep, keep pitching. And if it doesn't work somewhere, pitch, else, pitch the same thing elsewhere. Just, just pitch absolutely everywhere uh, and keep going. I think, I think that's probably the best advice. Also, it's really easy to sort of get sidetracked down. Uh, you know, journalism is sort of so big, you can end up doing really random things for part, parts of your career that you didn't really expect to. Um, so I, th I think if looking back now, I, I would probably sort, of, I'd probably sort of tell myself not to go down too many cul-de-sacs. So you've um, you've just joined the new Times Radio setup, where you sort of present the Stories of Our Time podcast. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is the new daily news podcast for the Times and the Sunday Times, um, which is you know it's an exceptional time to be doing it when there's so much in the news. But our timing was interesting. You know, we launched three days before we had to go into lockdown, so it was about sort of two weeks before the formal lockdown, I think. So um, we went from being a really new podcast with a new team and new systems to all working from home, you know, me in a cupboard <laughs> with a blanket <laughs> over my head and trying to do a big podcast, highly produced podcast too, every single day. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting period, but it's, um, it's great. So, you know, we, we sort of covered coronavirus in real depth, but there's also sort of space to do 
um, other stories, you know, like like the Times and the Sunday Times do. They, you know, there is a variety of stuff. So it's uh, it's a real joy. You know, we have some features, we have investigations, um, and just you know, hopefully, the best bit of news of the day, and we cover it in depth. So that's the real joy. You know, I, I sort of came from the BBC, and just having twenty to thirty minutes every day where you can get into one subject in real depth is such luxury. It's great. And why do you think it is important to be able to look at certain stories in such depth and with an analytical view? Because I think it's really easy um, just to hear sort of the three minute version. And the awful thing is there is so much, you know, there is such a variety of news out there, but especially in broadcast terms, it's kind of much for muchness. There are lots of different versions of the three minute exploration of a subject. You know, you can get it from lots of different channels, but it's still only the three minute, you know, there isn't that much depth. Yeah. Um, and it was one of it was always one of the frustrations of I found of sort of trying to work to big daily news programs, um, you know, at the BBC, for example, which you know does make an effort, but it's really hard to tell a story properly or to follow something and really explain to people what's going on. You know, you end up you you're, you're very aware of it when you're editing it down. You're trying to sort of take shortcuts to explain something quite complicated, and you're not quite sure how people are going to follow it because you, you've <laughs> compressed it so much. So it's, it's just great to be able to do that in real depth now. So that, you know, you take people with you and you, it also sort of, it, it, it has the courage to believe that people, people, are, people do care and they are interested. Uh, and that's, that's again, a real luxury. Yeah, I think that was interesting. We spoke um, previously with Rory Kathleen Jones of the BBC and he's almost described how you've got 90 seconds to, yeah. dis- to talk about something on the 10 o'clock news, which, it seems almost impossible in some things. Yeah, I mean, I've done that before with like, you know, you'll have gone away and done an investigation over weeks or months and it's really complicated and there's a lot of different elements to it. And you've literally got sort of 90 seconds or two and a half minutes to tell people about it. And you, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, um, the Times is such a sort of great institution of like British media. Have you always been a fan of the paper? Yeah, I grew up reading it. Um, I mean, I was really lucky, I think, because I grew up in a household where, you know, we always had newspapers and we'd have, you know, a few of them. But the Times was always, always one we had. My my dad was a big fan. Mm. So it sort of, it feels like it's a bit of an institution that I've grown up with, which is really lovely. It's really lovely to suddenly be a part of it. What is it that you like so much about it? I think it has some of the best journalists in the business. And it always has done. I mean, it sort of has great proper portions of analysis, which, you know, in real depth, which you don't always get. But also, I think it's done a really, really remarkable job, especially through the last couple of years of Brexit, where a lot of the papers have sort of ended up campaigning on one side or another. I think it, it, it did quite a good job of sort of trying to steer a steady course and just report the news, which I mm. think it's managed to do. Um, and it sort of, it still cares about investigations. It cares about breaking news. Um, all of those things which I love, but also, you know, if you've grown up with a paper, there are sort of elements of it which you are just really used to, you know, all the sort of yeah. furniture. <laughs> um, you become familiar with them. Yeah, you kind of, you, you always are. I mean, like, this is, this is absurd, but like, I remember at the, uh, when I worked at the BBC, uh, the PM programme with Eddie Mayer, we used to have a daily ritual where you'd open up the Times and, I mean, this is really absurd, but like, there's a, there's a birthdays column. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, we play yeah, the birthdays yeah. game where you, you go through and you just name the person and everyone takes a guess at how old they are or whether it's a show, whether it's a showbiz age or whether it's their real age. Is it one of the ones the agents put in that's a couple of decades, couple of decades younger than you actually imagine? So you talked a bit about working at the BBC. Did it feel a bit of a risk leaving that sort of safety net to go and work for this brand new Times Radio? And what was it that made you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, there is sort of something very comforting about being at the BBC, and I was there for years, um, and it's a wonderful institution, you know, it's sort of, again, it's another institution that you sort of grow up with, um, you work with some remarkable people, and, you know, leaving them more than anything, I think, was a real wrench, but this was sort of such an exciting venture, you know, the Times is a paper I really respect, launching a, a daily news podcast is just really exciting, you know, podcasts sort of feel like they are the future, but also just being able to do that one thing of sort of, you know, I've worked on so many of the daily news programs at the BBC and you never get 20 to 30 minutes to just do one subject properly and think 
you know, at, by the end of that, people will understand it, you know, as much as we do anyway. Um, and you've really sort of given people, you know, something worth hearing. So it just seemed like such a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. And it has been so far. We're very new. <laughs> uh, before you joined the Times, as you mentioned, you worked at the BBC a lot on the Today programme as well. And that's sort of a great show. A lot of people look to that as one of the BBC's big sort of driving forces. How did you feel before your first appearance? On the Today programme? Oh, God. Um, good question. Um, slightly terrified, but I remember I was sort of, it was in, I was in the middle of a really big investigation. And, and you're sort of, when you're, when you're doing that, I mean, you have a, the last week of it, there's a lot of sleepless nights, but you're just so driven by the subject yeah. and what you've got that there's no time to stop and think about, you know, the madness of all the shows you're doing. And, and also you end up, when you're working at a place like the BBC, you'll start off with a Today programme and then you're running straight out of there to go and do Five Live and you're, and you're sort of doing back-to-back -back interviews yeah. all day. So again, there's just no time to sort of stop and think about <laughs> the fact that you've just been on the Today programme. Um, but it was lovely because before I was a reporter, I'd sort of worked there as, as sort of a, a researcher and producer for, for years uh, years ago. And so it was really sort of lovely to go back and, and be on the other side of... So, you know, in, in the studio, you sort of have yeah. like this glass panel dividing you. So it's not lovely to be on the other side. I think it's fair to say one of the highlights of your career is the 20 part podcast series, A New Life in Europe, um, that you started. Bless you for saying that. <laughs> that you started in 2014. So you travelled with the Denis family, is that the right way of saying it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, from sort of Jordan to Europe. That must have been a life changing experience. Yeah, it was, um, it was a, a really remarkable a really remarkable thing to have been able to experience you know I feel really lucky I mean it was never supposed to be that so you know again you don't normally get the chance to do anything in so much depth and each of those episodes was much longer than a normal BBC report um, and I was actually sort of sent out to do like one or two days um, in I think it was Turkey at the time uh, and I got mm. there and I, I basically kept calling up and finding an excuse to stay because it was sort of it was just before the migrant crisis had really sort of properly hit the news. And I remember being in a, a town called Izmir, which is right on the coast. And I just got there and I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, there was just, there were Syrian refugees everywhere. They were asleep on the streets. They were crowding around the stations. They were all looking for smugglers. And nobody had, nobody had realized yet. No, there were no other journalists there. And I remember sort of about a week later, some photographers from Reuters turned up and suddenly the press descended. But yeah. up until then, I sort of had like, yeah free reign to sort of start reporting. So I, I kept myself out there by, by sending sort of reports to the daily news programs about what was happening with the migrant crisis. But then the whole time I was recording with this one family who I'd met at the station in, in, in Izmir. And I ended up following them all the way across, all the way up to Germany, which took in the end about sort of five weeks, I think. And it was just the most amazing experience, lots of highs and lows and really random things you don't expect at the start of the journey. It was lovely because I hadn't expected to be there for very long. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for a big journey. I, I turned up, you know, wearing clothes for a day in Turkey when a really hot day, um, you know, like a, I think I was wearing like a, a long dress and some flip-flops or something. So completely impractical because I just thought I was there sort of recording a bit for about 24 hours and then I had to be back in the office. And, um, and I ended up sort of crossing Europe like that. But it was great because actually it was a, it was a lot like the refugees experience you know they yeah, by the yeah. time they got across on their boats they'd had to ditch everything so we were we were kind of all we were much of a muchness in sort of like these ragged dirty clothes by the end of it instead of um just a complete mess but it was an extraordinary experience so you talk about the denis family you must have had a strong bond with them spending five weeks traveling throughout europe yeah it's it was fascinating because it's that funny thing of being a journalist so you're there and you've got this amazing sort of you know I was really lucky because I was able to experience it with them so I, I could actually see every bit of the experience it wasn't just sort of you know parachuting in at some point and trying to find out what they'd been through but yeah. actually experiencing it with them so you do you do have the empathy of doing that but at the same time you're constantly aware that you're you know, you're not one of the family. You, you are the journalist. You are sort of always there as a slight outsider and you are always there with sort of a critical, you know, as a, a sort of a, a mind and you're, you're there sort of trying to report on them rather than be them. 
So, so it's, it's an odd relationship. But it's lovely because I've been able, uh, you know, I was allowed to sort of carry on the series after they got to Germany and I went back for a couple of years really and sort of kept reporting on how, how they were getting on. So you do sort of get, you really get to know the characters incredibly well and you get to know, you know, the, the tensions and the dynamics and um, it was a, a really fascinating thing to be part of. You sort of talk about how you realised you could come away from it eventually. Did that ever cause any sort of dilemmas, knowing the situation you were in and the situation they were in? Yeah, I think um, because I, I, I just followed them the whole way. So, you know, I wasn't sort of leaving at the end of the day to go to a hotel yeah. while they were sleeping on the street. You know, I, I was on the street with them or, you know, there was a really rough period for a few few nights where we were sort of on a in middle of a gravel pit on sort of the a, a railway we were all just sleeping on the railway and then the, it was so bad this was on the border of Macedonia that there was eventually a riot and nobody had sort of slept or, or eaten or drunk anything for, for a while um, and to sort of to be able to experience all of that you kind of forget that you can get out of it I think for them there was always sort of a slight tension where they were like yeah but you've got a passport you're okay mm. But when you're sort of living through all that, you don't really sort of see, you know, there isn't sort of a quick route out of it. It's not like I can just jump in a cab from in the middle of nowhere and get to somewhere safe. Um, and in, instead, actually, there was sometimes it was, it was almost awkward because we'd sort of, um, we'd get to some really deserted spot where they were going to cross the border. Or, you know, for example, that night when we, there was a, a huge riot and, and the Macedonian riot police had turned up and they were sort of, hitting people and there was just smoke everywhere because it was it was a really difficult night and it went on for it was an eight-hour riot and a lot of the refugees managed to cross through it because they were sort of pushing forward and all these fences were breaking and it was just it was complete chaos and at the end of it I had to I had to stay there and walk five kilometers at about at about five in the morning through these forests to get to the official border because I was never allowed to cross oh, right. through, through yeah. the unofficial ones so it was sort of slightly awkward where Suddenly, there there are there are a few borders where I'd suddenly find myself on my own with nobody around, and it would be sort of um some ungodly hour, and you you just got to find your way to the the proper border and try to get across. And because I looked like a refugee, you know, I mean, I sort of had probably had dirt all over me, and uh, you know, my, my clothes were pretty ragged by then. Um, it wasn't always easy getting through the, the borders, even with your passport, because people don't trust you and they think you've stolen it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't a barrel of laughs, but it was a it was an amazing experience. So you spoke about like some of your experiences there with the riots in Macedonia, but what event would you say along the whole journey that had the most impact on you? Um, it was probably actually just quite soon after that. Um, and it's really hard to explain, but we were sort of we were so sleep deprived, um, and once we sort of got through Macedonia. And it all happened in a big rush and we just hadn't been able to sleep because of these riots and other things for a, a few nights running. And we were all in a terrible state as we got, as we finally got to Serbia. Um, and I just, I remember I, I, I recorded it and, and I remember listening back to the recordings and thinking, I can't believe we were really like that. But you know, we, I even had conversations with some of the family about how we were almost hallucinating because we hadn't really slept. And you know, some of the kids from the family were suddenly getting gray hairs because it had been such an intense few days. But um, so we were all in a, a pretty bad state, but there was just this moment as we got across the border where both in Greece and Macedonia, the police had been incredibly harsh. You know, they'd sort of, they'd almost tried to punish the refugees. There'd been, you know, beatings in Macedonia, the police in, in Greece uh, in, during the riot, and the police in Greece had been sort of equally unhelpful. And then we got to Serbia and there was this moment where we'd had to walk across this sort of big dusty plain. I mean, it looked almost biblical. Um, and there was a woman who'd had to carry her baby all the way. And she'd sort of basically carried the baby across from the border of Macedonia, across Macedonia and into, into Serbia. And she was exhausted. And you could see, you know, it was a hot day. There was no, there was no shade. There was nowhere to sort of sit. Uh, and she, she just looked like she was sort of covered in dust because there were dust storms everywhere. And, and she'd just been carrying this baby. It looked sort of like a scene from sort of something biblical. Uh, and there was this amazing policeman in this little village in Serbia who just told her to sit down, gave her a bottle of water, took her baby and started playing with it as if it was his own. And wow. it was just such a lovely moment. I took a picture of it and I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, we, we hadn't been anywhere where you can charge your phone properly. So I, I, I didn't tweet it for a couple of days, but then 
I tweeted it. And I just remember it was the first night I'd managed to get to a little guest house. And it was the first time I was going to be able to sleep in days. Um, and my phone suddenly went mad. I just remember like flinging it at a wall to make it stop. But the picture went viral. <laughs> um, and it was just, it was like constantly pinging. And it, it, it was just the loveliest thing. It went completely viral and it ended up on the front page of all the Serbian newspapers and all these sort of Serbian people were sort of texting me saying, you know, sort of um, tweeting me sort of saying, finally, the world can see we're not a genocidal nation. Um, and then the, the, I think the, the prime minister and the deputy prime minister of Serbia ended up making a, a declaration so that saying they were going to find this policeman and award him and, you know, sort of a medal. And so he ends up being called to, to the capital for this big ceremony. And in the process, they worked out that he was actually ethnically Albanian. And those villages on the border are sort of a lot of the, you know, the, the places where there were tensions. And a lot of the people there had been refugees during the height of the war. And, and all the people who'd been saying, us Serbs, we're not genocidal people, were then sort of having to acknowledge that this was actually an ethnically Albanian person who had, had done a lot for their country's reputation. And there was just this amazing moment for the next week we were still traveling across Europe, so it's slightly surreal, but I was getting these messages from all over the place and the, and the newspapers in Serbia, where they ended up having this big open conversation about their nationalism and, and where they were and, and, and acceptance. And it was just re it was really bizarre to sort of suddenly find yourself slightly caught up in it, but a bit of yeah. a privilege. How was it eventually when you had to come to leave the, the Denis family? How did that feel? Really, um, really odd i mean it was sort of this great moment where they'd finally got to their destination and they sort of thought all was well and and so it was sort of slightly celebratory as well but it was you know we'd all been through this really big thing together um and i just remember it being really odd walking away and feeling like it was somehow over um but because i carried on covering it i remember i, I think I, I i flew back to see them in germany about a week later just to sort of see how how it was all going and if they'd managed to settle in so it, it wasn't it wasn't too bad it wasn't too much of a shock but yeah. the moment where the the whole journey was suddenly over was just hard to describe you know it's, it's sort of when you've all been through something quite grueling um and you can't quite believe it might be at an end mm. the podcast series obviously excellent it won loads of awards including the world media radio award were you did that feel quite gratifying it was really bizarre. I mean, so it won, um, you're right, you know, we were really lucky. I mean, I, I, I'd sort of, I'd been off on my own all that time with like a little recorder and a little laptop yeah. and just mixing yeah. these things. And, and you don't think it's going to have a life of its own, but it was so lucky. It, it sort of, it proved to be really popular and then it won all these awards. And there was this moment in, in New York where, so it had won a bunch of awards at the World Radio, the International Radio Festival, but also it won a Peabody and I hadn't realised that was a big deal until I got there. <laughs> there suddenly this, this, this ceremony and you're walking down a red carpet, like sort of completely blinded by all these cameras flashing. Um, and I, <laughs> I hadn't expected this at all, but I just remember it's one of those, like sort of like, like a rabbit in headlights, just sort of walking yeah. down this throwing questions at you, sort of saying, you know, who are you most excited to see? And I was like, God, I don't, I have, I clearly haven't done enough research. So I was like, all, all of them, just, just all of them. <laughs> and, and they were sort of asking what you're wearing. And it was so weird because I'd got through, I know. And I, I and it was just the most surreal moment. Like literally like, like a rabbit in headlights, all these flashing lights and people asking you what you're wearing. And I kept thinking, this is so odd because I've won this award for a, a series where I wore by the end of it, sort of like, you know, a really ragged, torn, dirty dress. Yeah. And there was a moment when we were crossing the border into Hungary where it suddenly started to pour. And the only way, and we were walking through mud, and the only way I could do it, because I was wearing flip-flops still, was by having pink carrier bags tied around my feet. And I was wearing a black bag over my dress. I was wearing like a big bin bag. Um, and I, it was just the weirdest sort of, it was so incongruent, you know, sort of knowing that I won it for, for wearing a black bin bag and walking across the border of Hungary with carrier bags over my feet and then suddenly there you are in this glossy you know middle of New York at this glossy ceremony and everyone's asking you what you're wearing it's just one of those really bizarre moments in journalism you do get you just get such a variety I mean yeah the highs and lows are just so varied when you started the podcast and did you ever have any idea that it would end up how it did with all the awards oh god no no not at all I mean um 
I, I was genuinely just sort of fighting to, to, to be able to, to do it. So, um, you know, I had this great editor who was really supportive at the BBC, who was trying to find, we were both trying to find ways around to just to keep me out there. So I was sort of filing reports to the daily news programmes the whole time. And this was sort of like on the back burner, sort of like almost like a secret project. Oh, right. um, and I was just sort of, I was, in the end, I was just churning these reports out. So, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you're editing them yourself and you're sort of thinking, God, that's probably a really rough cut. <laughs> I wonder if someone's going to hear that. Um, so it was kind of miraculous when I just, I couldn't have imagined that it would sort of even be popular. You know, there was, there was a fight yeah. to, to be able to run on, on the, because uh, it ran on the World at One on Radio 4. And again, normally packages are, you know, at the very longest end or about six minutes. And all of these were sort of about double that. Mm. So it, it just felt like a minor miracle every time you managed to get it on air. But the, the idea that sort of it would, it would do so well was, gosh, it couldn't even have begun to imagine. Before you started the podcast series, you worked in Beirut, Lebanon for two years. What was that like? Yeah, it was sort of about a year and, and a bit or so. Um, it was amazing. It was the most, um, the most amazing experience. It was one of those sort of moments where you, I think you end up sort of growing a lot. There's a lot to be said for those sort of foreign posts. Um, I mean, I'd always been fascinated by foreign news and I'd been doing a lot of sort of stuff on the Syrian war from London. Um, mm. But then actually being there, being in Beirut with sort of the Syrian war going on around you, but also sort of a lot of the Arab Spring was still playing out. So I was covering the whole of the Middle East, even though I was based in Beirut. So I'd sort of be off in... Cairo a lot for you know the election of CC and and you know, great moments of big tension there, um, and then you know, Turkey and Jordan and wh wherever things were happening, I yeah. end up going to cover. But uh, Beirut was amazing; it was a, an extraordinary experience. And there was um, one particular incident in 2014 when you were kidnapped. Um, if you feel like you can talk about it, then feel free. But it's it's up to you. But I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about one well, more love to hear that's sort of a wrong choice of words but <laughs> find it incredibly interesting yeah it was really odd because uh, that sort of that came up in uh, a piece I did just before the times podcast launched yeah. and we'd I'd actually just been having sort of a casual chat with the interviewer and she'd sort of asked something about you know whether it's easier being a woman out in those war zones and I sort of I, I, I literally didn't think anything of it I was just sort of answering a separate question mm. but it was really because I hadn't actually told people, a lot of people didn't know about it until that came out, and I didn't realise. Um, I mean, for example, my mother didn't know. <laughs> I, had to, I had to give her a ring before the article sort of hit her doormat, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is awkward. Um, yeah, just but to say, it, it, at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sort of, I hadn't really, I hadn't really talked about it. A lot of my colleagues at the BBC didn't know about it at the time, but. Yeah, it was, it was an odd way of sort of having, I literally had to make a phone call and tell her, but by the way, there was that time <laughs> when I was kidnapped. Um, it was, it's, it's really odd. It's sort of, it's, um, it's one of those things which sort of your instinct as a journalist is always to sort of almost make a joke out of and be like, oh, it's fine. It was yeah. absolutely, mm. it's just one of those things that happened and I managed to get out of it. Um, but I'm also very cautious that it's it probably very stupid to do that because, um, a couple of years later, a, a woman who worked for DFID at the British Embassy in Beirut was actually killed in very similar circumstances. And it sort of, um, you know, it does make you stop and think that there's, you know, it really isn't a laughing matter. Um, and it wasn't at the time, you know, it was sort of, um, it was just a really odd, uh, you know, I, I was very lucky. I was only kidnapped really for a night. I managed to escape. Um, I'd sort of, I'd been told years before that, that if you're ever kidnapped, you know, one of those sort of laughing conversations that you never yeah. really expect yeah. to matter, but it's funny what sticks in your mind. And um, some friends had sort of said, if you're ever kidnapped, you've got to get yourself out in the first 12 hours or so, otherwise you're in real trouble. Um, and if anyone has to come and save you, then you'll probably be dead already. So I kept, I kept thinking, I've got to get myself out of this. Um, and I'd sort of been kidnapped in like the most unexpected way I'd sort of been having dinner with a friend of mine who worked at the embassy and her mother who was visiting and um they'd they were about to get into cab and they sort of gave it to me instead and I think it was basically it was so it was disguised as cab but it was some uh, there were two people in it and they were 
I think, looking for foreigners. It was sort of around the time when you could get quite a decent price for, for foreigners who were kidnapped. You know, it was when ISIS was looking for them over the border. Everybody, you know, there was lots of different groups who were looking for, mm. for foreigners for, for money or for you know, political gain. Um, and I got into this cab and then sort of pretty soon realized it wasn't, it wasn't taking me home. Um, yeah. And, you know, they, they kept trying to get me to drink something, which I wouldn't do. And then, um, I'd sort of, I, I, I remember sort of brazening it out and sort of pretending this was just a cab that had got lost and sort of telling them that the, the embassy would be looking for me if I didn't get back very quickly. Um, and they sort of, I think they, they, we sort of ended up negotiating a bit and they sort of panicked at one point and then drove off. We were sort of, we'd left Beirut, we were sort of out in the middle of nowhere and they sort of drove off up this mountain. Um, and I just remember they were driving so fast that every time they hit something on the road, the whole car was sort of coming was sort of jumping mm. um, and they sort of got to the, the top of this mountain and there was just this sort of deserted building site and they stopped the car and I I just remember having this sort of feeling where you think god I, I've seen this in film scenes this is where people come to die yeah, yeah. <laughs> none of this is good um, and it was a man and a woman and the man sort of jumped out uh, and I sort of thought I think I'm just gonna have to make a run for it so I tried to open the door to, to just run in, in wherever I could yeah, um, yeah. but the woman blocked it um, anyway and then the, the man came back and I, I came very very close to being raped and uh, very close to being killed mm. but for a, for a few hours we sort of just went through periods of sort of negotiating almost calmly where you know I was sort of saying well look if you take me back to Beirut you know the 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 police will be here any minute, and sure, which was a total bluff. Yeah, um, yeah. they didn't. Uh, they thought I'd texted somebody, uh, and I actually hadn't. <laughs> well, I, I tried, but they they'd grabbed my phones off me, mm. and I hadn't actually pressed mm. sent. But I, I I bluffed that I had, and the police would be there any moment. Um, and they had. I mean, they had my phones. They had everything really, and they they were arguing amongst themselves about what to do, I guess. And then the woman just kept sort of shouting. They sort of panicked at times, and then I was, you know, being hit and and things like that. And uh, and then the woman panicked, just told him to kill me. <laughs> I sort of thought that probably was it. Um, and I just remember being dragged out of the car, and I, with such force, I sort of fell on the ground. And there was a moment when I think this guy was thinking about killing me, and it was sort of a could have gone either way, really. Yeah. Um, but I was really lucky. Uh, but then I was I was stuck on top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Uh, with with nothing, with no phones or money or even my passport, everything sort of gone. Um, and I just sort of, uh, it was sort of very early morning by then, but I was in, it was still dark and I was in complete shock. So I just remember talking really loudly to myself just to assure myself I, I wasn't actually dead. I'd sort of somehow yeah. survived it. Um, and walking down this mountain, just sort of every step sort of, you know, just reassuring myself that I was definitely alive. I definitely got through it. But I wasn't sure if they were coming back. So, you know, you're sort of still very much on edge. And, and as I sort of got towards the bottom, there were suddenly these buildings and you could sort of see these buzzes on them. And I was pressing all these buzzes like a lunatic and nobody was opening their doors, you know. <laughs> sort of, yeah. It was sort of just completely mad. And then towards the bottom, I came across this tent full of Sy Syrian refugees and I could hear voices inside this tent and I didn't know if I should burst in and throw myself on their mercy or if, or if it might be the kidnapper still. You know, you, you just, it, you're, mm. you're thinking all sorts of random things. Anyway, I did burst in and, and uh, it was a, a family and they sort of lent me their little little phones. No, it was sort of a, a really old fashioned phone. And I was trying to find a, a number for the FCO on it to try yeah. to tell somebody yeah. where I was and try to get help. Um, and they were very, they were very, they were very kind to me. And I eventually sort of got rescued. Do you think in the lifestyle that we live currently that a lot of people don't necessarily realise the risks? that foreign correspondents have when they're out in countries such as Lebanon? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, 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 th I mean, it's really hard, you know, because you sort of spend most of your time telling everyone it's really not risky, you're absolutely fine, you know. And if my mother's listening, it really isn't risky, it's absolutely <laughs> fine. Um, but there, there, is a, there is a danger that you sort of, you start to believe it, and then you're sort of, you know, you, you walk through life thinking you're somehow protected and, and you know that you really do have to be aware of the dangers because there there are so many you know while I was in Beirut there'd, there'd frequently be sort of 
car bombs and things and you know your instinct there were big political car bombs it was the middle of the, the Syrian war and there was sort of a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians taking place in Beirut at the time so you know the the, the Iranian embassy would be bombed and then the Saudis would you know there'd be another target and there were sort of serious big explosions and I remember your instinct as a journalist is always to sort of run straight in and then quite often there are secondary explosions or because of just the the the, the size of the explosion it's reverberating hours later and like you know glass panes will suddenly start crashing down around you because they've just been unsteady for and shaking still for the last hour so you know there's all these sort of like li little things that you you just have to be so constantly aware of or you know sort of getting caught in crossfire and stuff like that and it's so easy when you're a journalist to sort of just be obsessed with the things you're looking at and the story around you and sort of forget yourself in the middle and I think it's just one of those things you've got to be very aware of do you think it's improved like those experiences in Lebanon and being a foreign correspondent? Has that improved your skills as a journalist beyond anything that you probably expected? Um, I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, uh, I, I think every time you do something, you get, you know, you, you, you gain experience and a bit of wisdom from it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've done sort of lots of foreign stuff over the years, you know, and um, and, and every time you come across sort of a particularly dangerous situation, I think, again, it sort of gives you, you know, there's almost like a muscle memory of yeah. what to do at a time of real, you know, when your life's probably in danger um, and, you know, your instincts get sharper. So in, in, in many ways, I think, I think that's definitely helped. You know, I've sort of, I've done quite a bit in Africa over time where you often find yourself in funny, hairy situations and, it's always good to sort of have, you know, have accumulated experience over the years that sort of means you're going to be better at dealing with them. I think it makes you a bit better at talking to people who've been through traumatic things too, because yeah. I think you just sort of have a, you have a different understanding of them. When you're talking about other work you've done, of course, there's another story that you broke about sort of the sexual misconduct within the Save the Children charity. Was it strange to find such a, a horrible story in a within a charity that does on the outset such great work yeah and it was really difficult actually it was really difficult to report because um you know some of the victims who had been through awful stuff and were, were furious at the way they'd been treated at the same time didn't want to necessarily tarnish the charity's mm -hmm. reputation i mean i remember i almost i almost reported on the story um a few months before it actually eventually came out that there was a there was a bomb in in Afghanistan which hit the Save the Children offices and you know my sources suddenly didn't really want to talk at the time because it felt like it was you know the wrong time to be attacking the charity when it had just been through something awful and, and it's one of those awful things where you know the charity is made up of so many people and there are so many people on the ground doing really great stuff and then I mean in this particular case it was it was the the people who were running the charity who in here in London, who were really sort of, um, who, who were really problematic. Would you say therefore that you had a moral conundrum ever running that story? I, I didn't think so because I just thought the way these women had been treated was so horrendous. It should be, it should be reported, yeah. but also sort of, you know, there is, there was something in the way the charity reacted to the reports, which again sort of had this, this moral high ground which I think meant they didn't feel they were accountable or you know they weren't every time I put things to them they very rarely came back to me or they usually just sort of sent lawyers letters and there was sort of a real sort of sense that they didn't feel that they should be held accountable for, the, for these things and you know charities if they're to work well need to be accountable yeah um, they need to be you know wherever you find behavior like that it should be called out Hopefully the charity is, is better for it at the end of it. Did that sort of um, lack of accountability only sort of drive you on more? Yeah, I think so. I think sort of um, what really stunned me with that particular case was, so the, the chairman of the charity was uh, a man called Sir Alan Parker, who, ra who still runs actually one of the biggest sort of PR companies and sort of reputation management companies in, in the city. Um, and they, they basically approached the whole thing as a reputation management. You know, they, they sort of thought if they bully you mm. enough and send you enough legal letters, you'll somehow leave the story and, and step away. 
Um, and it, it, was, it was diametrically opposed to what you would expect from sort of a, a charity, which, you know, it ran campaigns on protecting women and girls from sort of sexual harassment and abuse in, in war zones and places like that. And then the idea that they would sort of, they would cover up what was happening in their head office and treat it as if sort of it's something you're not allowed to talk about or, or report on was deeply frustrating. And they kept sending me all these sort of legal letters and I found out in the end they'd spent about about a hundred thousand pounds on lawyers and reputation management people to stop the reporting. And this is charity money. And actually sort of as somebody who's given money to, to charities, it really frustrated me. So it, it does drive you on. So you're a broadcast journalist, you do sort of the podcasts and radio stuff. Do you, have you got any tips for young aspiring journalists? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I came in without any kind of journalism qualification. I sort of learned on the job. And I think, again, it was one of those things I would tell myself now if I was sort of able to talk to me starting up. You spend a lot of time thinking there's some great mystery to it. And you've got to be given permission to be able to do a lot of these things or to do them properly in the way that they're supposed to be done. And actually, there really isn't. You know, anyone can do it, to, and to be perfectly honest, anyone can do it. And um, a, a lot of the time, actually, you know, there's there's no great formula. The The, the more you approach it with, your own personality, I guess, and the things that you think are interesting, the more memorable it tends to be. You know, when I went off and did that series with the 20 part, 20 whatever part series with the Denis family, it was me and a little recorder, and at times that didn't work either, so it was just me and my mobile phone. <laughs> it was really rough and ready. There was no yeah. sort of great um, slick equipment or great editing gear or anything like that. It was, it was just sort of the immediacy of the tale. Um, and so don't, don't be afraid to, to just go and have a go. Don't sort of feel like it's got to be some uh, amazing, you know, produced, high quality um, product with sort of 10 people editing it and making sure it's sort of really glossy because that's not necessarily what people want to hear. How would you say that people approached you given the fact that you came into it with no media training? Because a lot of the expectations now is to have the NCTJ. Do you think that's it still exists and isn't a necessary exist existence in the media if that kind of makes sense yeah um i mean i kind of i regret it not not having journalism qualifications partly because i've never learned shorthand <laughs> and that still kills me i sort of have my own version of it it's not very good um but also because i think i spent too long feeling a bit like a, a bit of a fraud um and actually a lot of it is down to instinct i mean the great thing with journalism too is that you know but again the, the, the more you do it and the, the the more environments you're exposed to so much of it comes down to your judgment and your editorial judgment and you know some of that can't can't be taught some of it you know you just gain from experience um and i i, I was lucky i'd sort of been working at newspapers from the moment i left school and then i sort of got involved with the bbc very early on and i'd sort of seen so many different parts of it and i'd done a lot of the sort of the the behind the scenes jobs of being a researcher or a producer or edit you know the editor of the program so i'd sort of i I'd, I'd seen every facet and i'd had a go at you know do, doing all the jobs on the way to to reporting that i sort of you know by the time i was reporting it you sort of you've probably learned all you can um but people tend to sort of judge you on your experience i guess so i was very lucky to have have been able to work in some great places podcasts there's no doubt about this podcasts are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the media what why do you think that is i think there's something sort of which still feels very personal about them you know you sort of put your headphones on and and it sort of just um it feels like you're shutting out the noise of all the news because you know we all spend so long on twitter which is great but so bitty and you're, con you know, you're constantly updating and there's just so much being you know, bombarded with information coming from everywhere um, and if you're following the news you're probably following lots of programs which again are giving you that sort of that very short quick sharp bit of news and I think people just really relish proper storytelling and being able to really get involved in something and feel like they're being presented it in a almost more personal way and you know somebody's just guiding them through something they wanted to know in, in real depth. And I think that's, that's you know, probably the highlight for me. Um, 
podcasts do just feel more personal. I think people sort of, it's, it's more like having a friend explaining something yeah. than, than sort of, you know, the attitude of, of news programs, which still feel quite formal. Do you think it's almost the combination, for example, with the story of our times that you're presenting, there's that combination of the depth of print, but the presentation and delivery of that sort of podcast is a bit more friendly and accessible. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, for a little while, there was sort of this practice, I think it's still ongoing, actually, of sort of, um, you'd have long reads and you'd have a podcast where somebody literally just read out the long read, um, which I always sort of thought was not the best way of doing it. You know, you want the depth of a long read, but you want it to sound more natural. You want to hear a bit of the place it's talking about. You want to hear some of the voices. You know, you, you want to feel like you're being taken on a journey. It's sort of, you know, a lot of our stuff is quite narrative as well. It is, it is a story and it is being presented to you as sort of something you just hopefully just want to hear. You know, it's, it is, it's a more approachable way of taking in a lot of depth. Yeah. In context. Um, podcasts are genuinely seen as sort of a, more of a thing for young people to listen to. Do you see them as sort of a specifically yours as a gateway into people getting more into print media? Yeah, I mean, I think with ours, actually, the lovely thing is we're sort of, we're working as a gateway both ways. So hopefully we're, we're working as a gateway for younger people to get into, into, the, into the newspaper because we're sort of showing them some of the highlights and, and you, you can go back to the paper and sort of read more because, you know, the people they've been hearing from when they've written other bits on them or on the stories they've been covering. Um, so it's sort of, it's a way of showing you what you're missing, I guess, if you're not reading the paper. But similarly, we, we've had a lovely response too from sort of Times readers who probably haven't heard podcasts before, who are giving them a go for the first time, who are being introduced to the world of podcasting through us. So it's, <laughs> it's working both ways, I hope. So, Manveen, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure, I know I found that interesting. I'm sure everyone else listening and the other two lads will have as, as well. Yeah, um, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very right, much. Thank you. Cheers. That's all from this week's episode of the View from the Byline podcast. Make sure to give us a follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to listen as soon as we release a new episode. If you're on Twitter, then why not drop us a follow at VFTB underscore pod. Take care and see you next week.